three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Hello and welcome to another episode of Jade Talk Stuff. First up, apologies for the lack of episodes recently. I can't stand those podcasts that only release a few episodes and then you never hear from them again. But I promise this isn't one of those podcasts. However, in future, if it's been a while, feel free to give me a nudge or say, hey, Jade, you're slacking. If you've been to my website or listened to any previous podcast episodes, you'll know that this year has been particularly brutal with the loss of friends, a relative, and also the foster kids I looked after for many years. I've also been making some big changes to my website, which has in all honesty consumed me, and I was unable to think about anything else. However, the topic of today's podcast episode is part of the reason why I wanted to start this second podcast, Jade Talk Stuff. So today's episode is Jade Talks Brains, which is also a weird concept, because when you really think about it, my brain is actually just talking about itself. Just to clarify... I'm not a brain scientist, nor am I a doctor. So what gives me any credentials to talk about brains? Well, I have one. I've also researched a lot about how brains work, and most importantly, I've actually changed mine. Not as in physically replaced it with another, but I've changed how my brain worked by stopping habits and changing routines, and in the process stumbled upon some fascinating insights into how brains actually work. What prompted me to finally put this episode together was I recently watched The Female Brain, a movie starring Whitney Cummings, writer and creator of Two Broke Girls. The movie's based off a book of the same name, The Female Brain, by Luanne Brizendine. I actually have it in front of me here. And the book goes into far more detail. It's a fascinating read. Basically, in it, they describe how through evolution, genetics, upbringing, including trauma and learned behaviour, the female brain, whilst physically smaller than male brains, actually works more efficiently. It has more neurons compacted into a smaller area. Neurons are the little messengers that transmit information around the body via either electrical impulses or chemicals. In the female brain... They describe how behaviours that are sometimes associated as negative, like nitpicking or being neurotic, are perfect examples of the differences in male and female brain activity. In women, positive hormones get released when women perform certain tasks, like when they're stressed and they compartmentalise stuff. Another difference with female brains is they can remember feelings more clearly, which explains why they can recall how someone made them feel. Awesome if it was positive, less so if it was negative. See the movie, read the book, The Female Brain. Gives you a fascinating insight into how female brains work. Of course, anything mentioned in the podcast, there'll be links in the show notes. When you think about it, the brain is the most fascinating object in the entire history of Earth's existence. Because without it, everything that's not natural around us, everything you touch, use, eat where, communicate with, none of that would exist without the human brain. We take so much for granted. We neglect to consider how everything came to be. And knowing how the brain works can help us get the most out of it and ensure we keep it as robust as possible. 
and hopefully have more of an idea on how to fix it when things go wrong. There's several aspects of the brain I'd like to talk about based on my own experiences and information I've read about, but first up, habits. I used to smoke. I know, terrible, disgusting habit. And after years of smoking, I decided, that's it, I've had enough. I tried nicotine gum, but the problem with that is your body is still getting a nicotine fix, so it's not actually breaking the habit. And like most smokers who plan to quit, I said those immortal words, I'll quit after this, except with one little difference. I was returning from a trip overseas and a carton of cigarettes was so cheap from duty free, it was hard to resist. But I quietly said to myself at the airport, I'll quit after this carton. Then as I opened each packet, I counted down and repeated the mantra. Right, seven packets to go, then I'm quitting. Five packets to go, then I'm quitting. And I got down to the last packet, and then I counted down the cigarettes left until I got to the last cigarette, and I said, after this cigarette, I'm no longer going to smoke. You know what? I got halfway through the cigarette, tossed the rest out. It repulsed me. I no longer enjoyed it. I'll admit, the first probably two or three days were hardest, and every time I thought of having a cigarette, I'd have a glass of water and a piece of regular mint gum. What I didn't realise was through doing these small physical activities, I was actually breaking the habit. Only now have I just realised that I always have a water bottle with me wherever I go, and I fill it up at least two to three times a day, so maybe I'm still addicted but have just replaced cigarettes with water. Three months after quitting smoking, I was out to dinner with a friend and she commented that I hadn't ducked outside for a ciggy and I was like, yeah, I quit. It was only then she asked, how long has it been? And I realised I hadn't given a single thought to cigarettes in months. I will admit, I did temporarily start smoking again when I was living in New Zealand, as was common, everyone seemed to smoke over there. But I never felt the same addiction and it was only when I was out having a few drinks surrounded by smokers that the thought entered my mind. After a few months, I decided, nah, that's it, 100%, done for good. Even now, I couldn't tell you exactly how long it's been since I last smoked, because I don't even think about it. At the time, I wasn't entirely sure how I successfully removed cigarettes. I just knew I no longer smoked. Then, in 2013, I decided to remove alcohol from my life. I figured, if I can remove cigarettes, surely I could remove alcohol. It had been something I'd pondered over many months, and I set a date, the 1st of March, 2013. And, I can honestly say, I haven't consumed alcohol since. So, what's that, over five years? Not that I'm counting. Removing alcohol was harder than cigarettes, because it's more socially acceptable. It's available pretty much everywhere, from the supermarket, to bottle shops, to workplaces, restaurants, cafes, cinemas, sports grounds. It's hard to escape alcohol. I wrote a blog post and I'm also in the process of writing a book detailing how I removed alcohol. The hardest part was the unexpected consequences, like how others handled the fact I no longer consumed alcohol. Many friends thought they no longer could invite me out, like I'd turn into a pumpkin or something. But it wasn't until I saw a video by Dr Joe Dispenza that it was explained how I managed to overcome my habits. In the DVD, Evolve Your Brain, to paraphrase Dr Joe Dispenza, He basically describes how the brain can do amazing things. It can think thoughts, it can cause involuntary actions, and it can also change itself to think new thoughts and actions. 
I've already talked about this in Jade Talks going alcohol-free, but just as a refresher, or in case you haven't listened to that episode, when you're stressed, there's numerous chemicals that get released from the brain. Cortisol is one of those chemicals, adrenaline is another. These chemicals get you fired up, and when you constantly focus on a problem, overthinking it, your body continually releases cortisol, essentially keeping you stressed. Alcohol causes your brain to release endorphins, the feel-good chemical. That feeling, like a rush through your body of relaxation, the goosebumps, after you've had a couple of sips of alcohol. That's endorphins, not alcohol. The more often this chemical mix occurs where your brain releases cortisol and adrenaline because you're stressed, soon followed by endorphins because of alcohol, then your body becomes accustomed to that event. If the sequence of events happens often enough, your body presumes alcohol will soon follow you being stressed because that's what you usually do. And this is where the brain gets tricky. Your brain presuming alcohol will follow releases a small amount of endorphins or happy chemicals based on external stimuli, such as the sight of a liquor store or the smell of stale beer when you walk into a bar, prompting or rather confusing you into purchasing alcohol. Just like knowing which way to go home, when you're near a place that sells alcohol, whether you've been there before or you're seeing a familiar sign, your brain receives input from the eyes, recognises that information against data already stored, and emits a chemical response to neurons causing your muscles to act. Same thing happens for junk food, like hot chips. Once you start drinking alcohol, then the decision-making part of the brain is confused and all sorts of crazy things happen. In order to change habits, you need to alter the brain's release of chemicals by doing something different, thus creating new memories and new pathways for neurons. Every time you do something different, your brain is having to create a new file, if you will, a new memory of a particular action. When the first time comes where cortisol and adrenaline get released and you don't consume alcohol, instead consuming, say, a ginger beer, your body starts to create a new pathway. Basically, it says to itself, oh, okay, it's time you're stressed because cortisol was released, but you didn't consume alcohol. Okay, that's new, weird, not sure what will happen, but okay. The second time that sequence of events happens, cortisol gets released because you're stressed, you drink a ginger beer instead of alcohol, your body goes, oh wait, I know this. This one time you got stressed, you had ginger beer and everything was okay. In fact, you were happy. It's not alcohol, but I guess we trust that it will be like that again. The third time that sequence of events happens, your body is like, you know what, I got this. Making the fourth, fifth and sixth times that sequence of events happens of not drinking alcohol when you're stressed or whatever excuse you use, then that becomes the new norm. Eventually you'll have trained your brain into releasing happy chemicals when you consume ginger beer or iced tea or whatever the case may be doesn't have to be a drink, but prepping for that day when you walk into a bar and don't order an alcoholic drink, it's nice to have something you're comfortable with. Last Christmas, I had a moment of stress and anxiety. My car broke down, I had to get my cousin to pick me up, everyone around me was drinking, and I had a thought of alcohol. But the difference was, it was now a long-term memory. It no longer felt like a thing that I did. It was just something I used to do like attending school, playing cricket, or going to Australia's Wonderland, an old theme park in Sydney. When it comes to many vices, it's actually the happy chemicals your brain produces that you crave. 
but your brain has a funny way of rewarding you with happy chemicals with many vices, like alcohol. But there are many ways to prompt your body to release these endorphins, naturally. Having an orgasm, listening to music, certain foods like chocolate might trigger a release for you. For me, it's Lebanese food. As does spending time with family, friends or loved ones. It's important to recognise that feeling of euphoria, the rush of tingles as the happy chemicals are spread throughout your body. Listening to ASMR videos on YouTube can also elicit the same response. Whenever I write intensely and create a beautiful poem, that releases a rush of endorphins for me, which is like a braingasm. Part of why people experience pleasure from ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, is, according to an interview I saw with Nick Davis from with Wired magazine, he claims it's the actions we're seeing, the sounds we're hearing in ASMR videos that remind us of things that bring us pleasure. These could be a variety of actions like getting your hair stroked, a facial massage, soft makeup brushes running across your face. In other words, ASMR helps us to recognise what causes our brain to release endorphins, thus creating a pleasurable response. Whilst ASMR is not fully understood, it's your brain essentially being tricked into thinking something pleasurable is happening. And so when that occurs, your brain releases endorphins. It's sensory activation, essentially, which is incredibly powerful. Certain triggers work for certain people, but whispering, hairbrushing are common triggers. Essentially, it doesn't take long to realise most ASMR videos are about the warmth and happiness we feel from close personal attention. Apart from releasing happy and sad chemicals, the brain is capable of other incredible feats, one of which is navigation. When I was a teen... I came up with a theory on memory. Two types of people. Those that remember things based on places and faces, and those that recall based on names and numbers. Places and faces people are visual. They remember colours, shapes and objects. These people, when giving directions, provide landmarks like buildings or shops. Physical geographic locations like hills and waterways, and colours like a blue sign or a red post box. Which, when you think about our ancestors needing to hunt or gather foods... It would have been useful to describe directions based on mountains, valleys, rivers and even trees, or the colour of fruit. Names and numbers people are more data-driven. They provide street names, house numbers and suburb names. Why does this matter? Because knowing more about other people helps us communicate better with them. Instead of getting angry when they don't understand or get lost or can't follow instructions, explain things based on how their brain interprets and recalls information. When it comes to directions, a recent study by Professor Joseph Kirschfink found humans are also capable of picking up magnetic waves or the Earth's magnetic field. He performed an experiment of putting people in large wooden boxes and ran various electromagnetic fields around the outside, and those inside were able to tell when it was running and when it wasn't. Which makes sense, because I've always been good with directions and kind of know where I'm heading Though I admit, I do actually probably use the sun more for navigating than I realise. When I was travelling as a kid, mum and I stayed in a hostel in Oslo. As an adult, I stayed in the same hostel, and as we got near the bus stop, I recognised the area and was like, oh, the bus stop's coming up, then we crossed the park and we're there. It had been over ten years, but I still remembered based on landmarks. I recognised the park, and then that recalled my memory of staying at the hostel previously. Which brings us to memory. 
The brain has a complex system for storing and retrieving memories. The short term, like in the last five minutes. Long term, our childhood memories. Mid term, things we did a few months ago. And active memory, which is the things you're doing right now. When we learn something new, our brain creates a new file, if you will, a new pathway. If we don't do that thing again, it gets stored away in the not needed pile. If you complete that task again, over and over, then your brain recognises that memory as important and it creates a more solid and accessible pathway to more quickly retrieve that information in the future. Which is why the more times you do something, the easier it gets. But it also explains that anyone can essentially learn anything. It's a matter of pushing your brain to do the thing it's built for. Using this understanding also brings us back to habits. So the habit of drinking alcohol or having a cigarette is ingrained as a what your brain perceives as an important memory. In order to break that habit, you need to keep doing a new thing at the time you would usually consume alcohol or cigarettes. That overrides the existing pathways. As there are different types of memories, so too your brain has different ways of retrieving those memories because different memories are stored in different parts of the brain. Triggers help similar memories be retrieved, as many memories are linked. A good example of this is my great-aunt has Alzheimer's. Her short-term memory is shot. She can't remember what she was doing or talking about a minute after doing it. However, her long-term memories are still there. She spent a lot of time with my grandmother, her sister, out on the farm near Nil as a child. When I showed her photos from a road trip I took to Neil, which I talk about in my other podcast, G Talks Travel, immediately her face lit up and she rattled off stories about her childhood and she could give detailed descriptions about the house they grew up in, her tiny school there, and relatives long since past. It's not just thoughts that create memories. External stimuli like smells, tastes, visions, hearing, also feelings, all add to memories but they are stored in different parts of the brain. Which is why when someone has brain damage from a stroke or suffers from amnesia, they may lose certain functions and memories, but not all of them. Take music. Music is a powerful trigger, and it's been suspected that musical memories are stored in a separate part of the brain to other memories. There was a recent study by scientists in Berlin with a patient who had retrograde amnesia in that they couldn't remember anything about their life, their profession, or who they were. The patient was a musician for the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, and despite having no recollection of being a musician, they were still able to sight-read music and play the cello. You may have heard about people suffering from a head trauma, waking up and speaking a foreign language. Essentially, what has happened is the brain has suffered a major trauma, And like a computer rebooting itself, it does a check on all memories. And if a bunch of memories are damaged, it grabs the next available. In one case in the UK, a young guy had a car crash and woke up from a coma speaking French. Even though he didn't speak fluent French before the accident, the memories of French from high school were there, tucked away. And after the accident, his brain retrieved those memories and used those French memories as the main language memories. Funnily enough, there was a very similar story about an Australian guy who also had a car crash, woke from a coma, speaking Mandarin. Again, he had studied it in school, but was never fluent. 
However, his brain retrieved the memories of Mandarin first, and it took a few days for him to remember how to speak English. The crazy part of that story was he was so fluent in Mandarin, he moved to China, ended up hosting a game show on TV. So knowing that, think about everything you've possibly learned or could have a memory stored away of. The wealth of knowledge you may have hidden tucked away in your brain. You just need triggers to help retrieve it. From my travels, I've amassed a ton of knowledge from museums, guidebooks, learning phrases from multiple languages, but accessing all those memories is no straight task. But what to me is common knowledge is actually knowledge stored in my brain from memories created over time. Seeing a photo of somewhere, for example, the Forbidden City in Beijing, I can see in my mind Tiananmen Square. I retrieve memories related to the Forbidden City, like crossing Tiananmen Square in May 98, a few weeks before the massacre. And I remember millions of people everywhere. There was the protest parading along the main street in front of the Forbidden City. I remember we had to cross the protest to get to a bus stop to get back to our hotel. Even though everyone was holding hands, they stopped to let us through. Recalling that brings up another memory of being on a public bus when I was a kid in Beijing. And it was so crowded. Mum got off, I couldn't make it to the doors in time, and the bus doors closed and the bus took off with mum on the outside and me on the inside. I was terrified I was going to end up lost in Beijing. Eventually, with enough people yelling on the bus who realised what happened, and around the corner the bus stopped and I got off. Retrieving that memory brings up other related memories of buying jade chopsticks and visiting the Great Wall and flying Dragon Airlines. And now, in recording this podcast and retrieving those memories I just spoke about, has brought up other memories of getting off the Trans-Mongolian Railway and travelling in China with an ex-girlfriend, which then triggers my most recent memories of China, visiting Chengdu, the Terracotta Warriors and Shanghai Disneyland. The point is, your brain is capable of storing huge amounts of information, but knowing how to access it is another skill entirely, but is partly something you have some control over. Just recently, my grandmother went into a nursing home, and whilst it's located in an area I hadn't been to and was unfamiliar with, To get there, I had to go via a route I hadn't travelled since I was a kid. Driving as an adult, I recognised streets and landmarks, including intersections, and kind of instinctively knew the way to go, even though it had been at least 30 years or more since I last travelled that route. The memories of direction were recalled once I saw the landmarks. My brain, receiving external stimuli, went, wait a minute, we've been here before, let me retrieve those memories. And then the memories of navigation came back. The more often you retrieve memories, the more solid and stronger those memories become, which is why watching quiz shows or going to quiz events helps you retain the information you already have, plus possibly learning new stuff. Now that most information is fed to us, like say GPS instructions, we don't have to store those memories of how to get somewhere, nor do we have to store knowledge, we can just look it up. That doesn't necessarily mean the end of civilization. I mean, it does if there's a mass blackout and all GPS satellites are wiped. But hopefully, youth of today are filling their brains with other useful stuff. Though a quick search through Instagram doesn't leave much hope. Whilst your brain works autonomously, there are manual processes involved. And there's still so much research being done on the brain, and new information is coming out all the time. But the more you know how your brain works, the better you can utilise it. The more information you store in your brain, the harder your brain has to work. The less you use your brain, it can become lazy, making it harder to retrieve information. 
There's so much to know about brains, I could probably devote an entire podcast to them, not just a couple of episodes. But everything I know, I've researched myself. So in order to share more knowledge about the brain, I kind of need to do more research. As a creative, my brain works a little differently to others. Or perhaps because I devote a lot of time and thought to being creative. That's why I feel the creative section of my brain is stronger. The process of writing is a curious one. The best way to describe it? It feels like there's a tornado of words in my brain, and every now and then a few of them will fall out of the tornado, and I visualise them. Those are the words that get written down, often forming a poem. Obviously there's thoughts that are occurring before that happens, so it's not just totally random words. But the act of creative writing is a strange process when you think about it. When it comes to writing, for example poetry, I find it easier to write a poem with a notebook and pen rather than type it up. I can still type a poem on my iPad or laptop, but because it's so easy to delete a word or a sentence, that restricts or distracts my thought process. Also, writing uses different parts of the brain compared to typing. For me, writing is more of a compulsion. There's something inside that pushes me to do it. Maybe it's dopamine prompting the act, hoping for an endorphins hit. Maybe it's an addiction, which kind of makes sense, as a lot of creatives are also addicts. Another thing I find really odd about the brain is those random moments when you're doing something mundane and suddenly you think of a food and you can practically smell or taste it. Your brain just suddenly retrieves a memory, and the memory of eating something like corn chips brings forth the taste of cheese powder in your mouth, and you can imagine the smell. It's not as strong as actually eating a packet of corn chips, but that sensory information of the look, the smell, the taste is stored, and it could be a more efficient use of your brain to have a database of common food, so you recognise it and know it's okay to eat, and rather than creating new memories every time you eat a packet of corn chips, it's easy to retrieve partial information from past experiences. I find it fascinating all the processes that goes on in your brain, yet we're never really conscious of it, well not often anyway. A few years ago, I partook in management training. One of the sessions was about positivity. The idea was every time you had a negative thought, to imagine catching that thought and put it in your back pocket for later. When it comes to negative thoughts, your brain produces chemicals that enable the fight-or-flight response. In other words, they get you worked up. The more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the more you run through the situation over and over in your head, the more stressed you become because, quite simply, your brain is producing adrenaline and cortisol which keeps you alert, ready to run from danger or fight to protect yourself. Wonder why when you're stressed it's difficult to sleep? Because your brain is producing chemicals to keep you alert. So remember, all of this is happening in your own brain. No one else is getting worked up. Which is why you'll hear over and over about the benefits of meditation, yoga and exercise. Essentially, you're distracting your brain. You're changing the thought process. And when the negative thought process is halted, your brain can then change and produce alternate chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins, all the happy feel-good chemicals. Being aware of our thoughts and resultant feelings means we can take more control of them. A negative thought is only in your brain. Distract your brain by doing something else that requires lots of brain use, like a crossword, rock climbing, or allowing yourself to get lost in a book or a movie can help remove the negative thoughts. 
physically removing yourself from a situation. So if you're inside, go outside, into different surroundings, provides different stimuli that your brain has to figure out what to do with. Which is why going outside for a walk or a breath of fresh air can actually work to do you good. That's not to say, for example, during grief, we should ignore or wipe away all our feelings. Because allowing yourself to grieve is an important step in the brain's processing of someone no longer being in your life. But for day-to-day stresses, the repetitive thoughts, these can easily be halted by distracting your brain with something else. Grief is complicated. As I mentioned, different triggers help to retrieve different memories. Whether that be a place you went, something you ate, a smell which is why grief triggers can strike unexpectedly, seemingly at any time. There's obvious triggers like key dates, birthdays, Christmas, because you have solid memories which involve a variety of stimuli from that person who is no longer there. My friend Jen used to wear Estee Lauder pleasures. Every time I smell that, I think of her. In New Zealand, I regularly went out for lunch and ate ribs with my friend Chris, who also passed away unexpected earlier this year. And whenever I eat ribs, I don't eat them that often, but it brings up a variety of memories of hanging out with Chris. After I found out Jen died, I revisited significant places we hung out in Sydney, and being there retrieved those memories of other nearby places we went that I'd forgotten about. Clearly I'd found a trigger for that file of memories with Jen in Sydney. I know if I went back to New York or Fort Worth in Texas, there would be a ton of memories of her an eye that would come flooding back. Even photos can become memories. I have a vivid memory of Jen sitting up in bed in Texas, holding the sheet up, and that was a photo I took. I always loved that photo because she looked happy. But that photo got lost. But the memory of that photo still remains, thankfully. I guess I also have the memory of that moment right before I took the photo. And I'm sure I could describe it in enough detail that someone would be able to create a painting out of it, thereby creating new memories. Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Just proof that triggers help retrieve memories. Even if you think you've forgotten something, you just need the right trigger. Practical use of finding the right trigger to retrieve a memory should be crucial in education. But unfortunately, almost every education system I've been through still relies on teachers talking and students listening. One thing I learnt teaching at a private college in New Zealand was tailoring lessons based on how students learn. Every lesson plan had to have something physical for kinesthetic learners, something visual, an oral aspect for listeners, group activities for students to learn by teaching others, and most importantly, different styles of recap, 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 to help the students remember what was taught, whether that was a quiz, a presentation by the students, or posters. We had to have multiple ways to help them retrieve those newly created memories. Music was also a part of that. When I was teaching travel, there was an optional unit for the students on IATA, airfares and ticketing, which is a globally recognised qualification and highly respected. The students had to pass a test in order to get into the course, which included calculations, attention to detail and geography. On average, no more than one to two students from each class would get into the IATA course, and it was usually the top students who you knew would get in anyway. However, As I was teaching a travel course, and many of my students from my class were interested in gaining the IATA qualification, basically because of how I sold it to them, and even though some students hadn't even finished high school, and I had many teachers tell me 
ah, those students will never make it in Nayara. I was like, no, I have faith. They can, because I am their teacher. Each morning, I spent the first part of every lesson teaching them geography. And that night, they would go home, study, and fill out blank maps with country names, major airport gateways and capital cities, including the airport codes. Then the next morning, we'd do a quiz on it. Each afternoon, we ran geography games, such as pop quizzes. Each student had a globe they would look at on their desk. Another thing to note, of these students, only one or two had actually travelled overseas, so they didn't have the practical knowledge of travel to know where places were. However, that year, every one of my students, all 20, qualified to get into the IATA class, and they all passed the IATA exam. It was tough. For some, that was the hardest study they had ever accomplished, but it was proof that with the right education, anyone can learn anything. I even had students who surpassed my knowledge of geography, and I came first in geography in high school, three years running. On an entirely different topic, one aspect of brains that I've always been fascinated by is the occult or paranormal, things like telekinesis and sharing thought. Have you ever met someone you felt was on the same wavelength as you, and you often shared the same thought patterns? Like maybe randomly you both said something like, hey, let's go and get an ice cream or you knew what someone was going to say a second before they said it. There's been multiple experiments in this stuff, and recently using MRI machines, scientists have been able to predict people's thoughts and choices a few seconds before they actually made that choice, based on brain activity, with over 80% accuracy, which is more than a random occurrence. I know previous studies have failed to display with certainty the existence of vermiranasal systems, which are the sensory organs that many animals have to pick up pheromones. And so they haven't figured out yet if this system is, works in humans or even if it exists. But I have another theory, so hear me out. Your brain produces chemicals which cause neurons to act and send messages to muscles to move. This is a physical interaction that is happening. It's something measurable, it's not magic. So is it not possible that these chemicals could have some kind of scent and that when released they could be potentially picked up by another receiver's neurons and interpreted as a message to react, thereby sending a message to muscles to cause an action to the, by the receiver's brain? In theory, it's completely plausible. I've done experiments with friends where one person would visualise something that was going to cause a physical interaction with another person without saying what that was. So one person visualised their nose being itchy. They focused solely on that nose. And then they visualised that itchiness on the other person's face. And within a few moments, the second person started furiously scratching their nose. No words were spoken, so no one had any idea what the person was thinking. Another example, more explicit, but I'm sure you can imagine what sort of physical things you could make happen in someone else's body that could be obvious. I guess another similar example is when you're looking at someone and they're looking away from you, but they can sense that you're looking at them, and so they turn to catch your eye. I remember watching a documentary, and the ancient Egyptians believed there was a hundred and over 150 senses, way more than what science currently registers now. But I'm curious, do some of your own examples and see if you're on the same wavelength as your partner. If you can, provide proof, send it in. 
There's been a bunch of declassified documents released about the CIA's research into mind control, which went under the codename MKUltra, which you may have heard about. These were experiments happening across the country. Some of the stuff went on at Mantalk in northeastern USA was related to MKUltra. That's a whole other podcast episode on its own. I know Google Girls podcast did an episode about MKUltra, so there's no point in repeating what they have said. However, one last section of the brain that's important and worth a mention is the pineal gland, which is a tiny rice grain-sized globule in the centre of the brain. So far, scientists have established that it emits melatonin, which helps regulate sleep patterns and circadian rhythms, which is the wake-sleep cycle. And it's also why airlines are changing the lighting inside planes to help regulate melatonin and help stop jet lag. The best way to activate your pineal gland properly is to ensure you see morning light soon after waking up and the last light of the sun before it sets. Having a good night's sleep is crucial to overall well-being. I leave my blinds open a little and without an alarm, it's incredible. Every day I wake up, roll over just as the first hint of red is visible on the horizon of the sunrise. Even though your eyes are closed, they can still detect light which still sends a message to your pineal gland. Ensuring you sleep in a dark room without any little flashes of light from electronics helps to ensure your pineal gland doesn't get confused and wake you up prematurely. However, the pineal gland is also found to release a chemical compound, dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, which is similar to LSD or an hallucinogenic. And it's this chemical that's thought to provide complex spiritual visions of other alternate worlds which potentially started the concept of religion, you could say. Not enough research has been done in this area. You'll find plenty of hippie spiritual sites claiming great benefits from stimulating this pineal gland. But so far, I haven't found any backed up by scientific research. However, I just had a thought. If the pineal gland secretes melatonin, which promotes a restful sleep, and it also produces DMT in microdoses, which is an hallucinogenic, then it stands to reason and makes perfect sense that this is what causes our dreams. Would you not agree that a dream is similar to an hallucination? Clearly, more research is needed. But on that note, I'm going to leave this episode of G Talks Brains. And until next time, if you love what you hear, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to say hi, you can tweet me at Jadikins Jackson. Find me on Facebook at Jadikins Jackson. Head to my website, jadejackson.com.au. And don't forget to tell your friends about this podcast. If you're a fan of travel, check out my other podcast, Jade Talks Travel. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now.